Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast, and now your host, Avi Kravitz. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. I'm Avi Kravitz. I was super excited to meet our guest for this episode. Mark Wall is the CEO of mining company Mountain Province, which has a 49% stake in the Gachoque mine in Canada. Mark joined the company and the industry just over a year ago in November 2021, having been in executive positions in the gold and copper markets. And he brings a somewhat different view of the diamond industry and the product. We discuss a wide range of topics from the macroeconomic environment affecting mining to the famed ice road, which will soon be in operation for the mines in the Northwestern Territories of Canada. So please enjoy my conversation with Mark Wall. Hello, Mark. It's great to have you with us. Welcome, in a way, welcome to the industry. It's uh, it's just just over a year that you that you started in your position. So it's great to have you. Thanks, Avi. Great to be here. I was out this morning early shoveling snow from Canada, so uh, great to be here, and uh, I'm feeling fresh. Well, well, if it's any consolation, the other day I went for a swim in the sea here in Israel in the middle of winter, <laughs> so, and it was a beautiful day and very refreshing as well, so the contrast in geography, but I understand where you are in Calgary, I believe, and we'll get into Mountain Province being a Canadian diamond producer and what that means at this time, but I would like to start with just getting to know you a bit and your background. As I mentioned, it's now just over a year that you became C- CEO of Mountain Province, and this is your first job within the diamond industry. Your background is in copper and gold, um, all in the mining sector. So I wonder, what are your first impressions on the diamond market, the diamond industry? Thanks, Harvey. That's true. Copper gold is really my background. I spent some time in the US building a copper mine. I spent quite some years with a large gold miner, Barrick. So entry into the diamond space, at a high level, I will say digging a hole in the ground and turning big rocks into small rocks is pretty similar, regardless of the commodity that you're producing. Diamonds are particularly complicated around the geology side, I would say, more than I'm used to. And the sales and marketing is obviously a beast of its own and is something that I find and have found very, very interesting to dig into. You mentioned the C word being a commodity, and we've kind of had a light conversation in prior to this recording about referring to diamond as a commodity and how it's sort of viewed as a miner, let's say. And so how does the diamond product contrast to those other commodity type of mining or production products that you have experience in? Is it fair to refer to them as commodities, as we've mentioned in the past? Well, you're going to get me into trouble, Avi, but to me, it's a commodity because we produce it for economic purposes. We sell it, others buy it. It's used for different purposes. I mean, as we discussed, it's it's interesting in this industry. When I first came into it, I really had to think about that. If you're mining copper, then it's pretty clear what your purpose is, what you're doing. But if you're mining diamonds, what is it? And I gave that a fair bit of thought. And The interesting thing with the commodity I would call diamonds is metal or iron. Iron ore makes a product that we build things with. We build ships, we build bridges. Copper is really mostly linked to electrification and the distribution of electricity. But what do diamonds do? 
And then it occurred to me really what diamonds do and have done for many, many years since the 15th century is they've forged relationships, they've delivered families, they've brought people together. And that's a pretty good commodity to be involved in, I think. So you're still building something, but it's more of an emotional process that you're connecting into with the diamond. Exactly. No, that's the way I've come to look at it. And I think it's a good thing to be involved in. Right. And that, and that extends more, I think, to the marketing and sales side of things. But when you're looking at your mining production and taking a more macro view of your company's position and in relation to the market itself, I would imagine that initially you're looking at more sort of economic, socioeconomic and political events that are taking shape in the broader economy. Exactly. I mean, as with anything that we mine, which I'm going to call a commodity, we're interested in the market. And the difference with the diamond market is it's more opaque than the copper, nickel, zinc market where you can simply Google what the price is. And a pound of copper is a pound of copper is a pound of copper. Um, some aspects, for example, there might be certain deleterious elements present, which makes smelting more complicated. But diamonds is much, much different. You have, uh, you have grade, which is important in any, anything you mine, but you have size frequency distribution. How big are the stones that you're mining? And then you have quality frequency distribution. What's the quality of the stones that you're mining? So it's a very interesting market where even when you mine the product, you're interested in the aspects of what you're mining that are much more complicated than you would generally see in gold or copper. Then you have the whole marketing downstream side, which is, which is also very interesting. Right. And so that alludes to each mine having its own economic considerations when you're um, planning your production. Is that a fair assumption in the mining, in the diamond mining business? Sure. And I think that's, I think it's entirely normal though in any mining business. It's just in the diamond mining business, there's a few more aspects to it than you would generally see. And then you have the impacts of what's happening on a macro level around the world, which affects every commodity including diamonds, but it affects them in slightly different ways. So, so having now been in the industry for a year, as we mentioned, I think you started in November 21, right? That's right. So fast forward a year, it's a completely different market. 2021, we know was a great year for the industry. And I would imagine that you came in within this sort of very optimistic environment and that seems to have changed very quickly in the last year so how has that affected your thinking what is your take on the roller coaster ride that the world and the and the diamond industry has been on all those factors and geopolitical economic that have affected the industry in the last year i'm always optimistic are we optimism is the is the key but about the market more generally I mean, we've seen some inflationary pressures. We all know that. The extent to which they will play out is unclear. What is interesting at the end user side, so we know that the US makes up about 50% of the global diamond market at a consumer level. And as I read, we know that the US market is actually remaining strong. So there are inflationary headwinds, certainly inflationary headwinds on costs, as there are in any other mining commodity. On the demand side, the impacts of inflation don't seem to have been felt as yet, certainly in the US market. On the China side, we've got, which is 
terrible for those involved. And we've all been through it, being locked up in our homes without access to all of the things that we believe were normal in life. But we've got the large parts of China very much constrained. And to me, that creates a potential tailwind for the market in that while this is not a good circumstance for anyone to live in, eventually it will unwind or change and that demand will be released. And we know that while the US makes up 50% of the retail market, China and India combined make up around another 25%. So to me, there's a potential capacity in China that is to be released once things return to normal and things always return to normal. So I see that as an opportunity for the market. We've also got the sanctions against Russian goods, which has at the very least hindered the ability of those goods to enter the market. We know that there are Western and US sanctions on those products. And we also know further that some companies and some of the largest jewelry companies have additionally self-sanctioned those products. So again, at a really high level, I see we've certainly got the headwind of inflation that is yet to be determined what the impact will be on the demand side. And where we pretty much understand what the impact is on the cost side. And then from a diamond price perspective, we have the tailwind of a Chinese economy that at some point will release back to normal. And we have the hindered supply chain of Russian diamonds. So Avi, that's how I see things. Right. There's a lot to unpack there. And I'd like to talk about the pent-up demand in China that you alluded to, because that's something that we haven't heard much about within the industry dis discussions. It's very much about what's happening now. You know, Chinese buyers are not on the market. It's having a real impact on certain categories of goods in particular that are popular in China. But the big unknown is, well, there are a number of unknowns in China. I think that's part of the frustration. But one of them is when that market will come back to normalcy and the extent to which households there have been able to save whether they, you know, the, the boom in the markets in the US in last year's post-COVID recovery was very much due to the fact that consumers, households were able to save from not traveling, from the stimulus payments that came through. And I'm wondering if China is having that same experience, if there is a personal savings index that you're aware of that is seeing this potential and a potential rise of discretionary spending in China when it opens up and when tourism is allowed again, when people can travel and, and spend in those touristy destinations like Hong Kong, New York, et cetera, at those big brands. I'd say, Avi, the analog to what we saw in North America is there in that when there was no ability to travel or very limited ability to travel, and we saw all of us living under in suboptimal circumstances, when that released it, it released into the diamond market demand as well. Now, travel in China, I think, is as affected as it was in North America. The stimulus payments to me weren't that significant. And would that have driven the type of change we saw in the market? Some argue yes, I would argue no. The other thing we've got happening concurrently is that over the last several years, we know that on the supply side, we've gone from around 150 million carats on a global scale to around 100 and 
16 or so million carats. So we're seeing supply go down at the same time. So I think when you look at any of this, if you look at it, each one aspect individually, that's fine, but it's more helpful to consider all of the aspects that are going on at the same time. So you've got a general supply reduction happening in the world. Concurrently, you've got restrictions and a hindering of the market of around one third of that supply that comes out of Russia. And then concurrently, you've got the large portions of the big cities in China who are pretty much contained to their houses, which to me spells for quite a good potential for the diamond price moving forward. Interesting. And and I think one of the aspects of diamond pricing that we tend to overlook is the cost of mining, you know, that needs to be built into your your rough price at the end of the day. And I would imagine that that's where the industry is maybe first feeling the inflationary effect that costs of fuel, of replacement of parts, et cetera, has gone up for, for the mining companies. Are you feeling that yet? Is that a factor in, in the market today for the mining companies? It absolutely is. It absolutely is. Costs always need to be managed in the mining industry, always. But if you read any of the reports that are coming out from companies around their results, diesel saw a significant spike. For us, we are supplied through an ice road, which is a different way of doing things. But what that means is we build a road, an ice road each year, and then that ice road melts and goes away and is rebuilt the next year. But all of our diesel fuel and large bulk commodities are bought in along that road and are purchased at a point in time. So there was certainly an impact on diesel costs, other costs, labor costs. And we are, like all miners, really focused on how we manage and mitigate those costs to maintain the viability of of the mining operation. So, yep, lots of pressure on costs, lots of work around opportunities to minimize costs. And then the fine line that you, you have to walk is when polish prices are coming down, as we've seen they have in 22. And so it creates tension in the market. And I think we're feeling that tension, certainly on certain primary supply. It seems on in certain segments of the rough market that rough prices have come down, maybe in tandem with the polish, but certainly those bigger suppliers seem to be hesitant to reduce prices. And my gut feeling is because they are feeling that pressure from the cost side of things. I mean, when I look at the market, and and you're the diamond expert here, Avi, and I'm not, but when I look at the price as someone who isn't a diamond expert, I see it more as a stabilization than a withdrawal. I mean, you saw, saw a market that was certainly a bear market for a period of years. It strengthened into more of a bull market on the diamond side, but it strengthened very, very quickly. And then we've seen a settling of the market, which to me is really a stabilization. If I look at our pricing and read our sales and marketing head, who's who's very, very experienced at this, but I see a stabilization of the market into the pricing that we think is about where the pricing should be with some tailwinds for the future. But that I'm looking at this as a stabilization more than the market coming off. That's fair enough. I think um, I think there is maybe an argument that the market and prices were over-optimistic in 2021 
and that there, there has been a need for this correction and maybe this correction is a stabilization towards where the market should really, should really be in terms of creating that balance between supply and demand. Mark, I would, I would like to touch on the Russian sanctions and how, how Mountain Province is positioned within that context, because my understanding is that um, Gachakwai, which is your sole producing asset at the moment, has a similar type of production makeup as maybe the, the aggregated El Rosa goods. Is that a fair assumption? And so that's the first part of the question, which I'll let you answer. So the Mountain Province product is pretty wide ranging. We do produce some large stones, we produce a large amount of fluorescent stones, which is a, which as you well know, Avi, is a very cool trait where you have a normal clear diamond that when you put it under infrared light or if you go to a nightclub, it turns blue. It's actually very, very cool. So we produce fluorescent diamonds. We produce some large and some colored diamonds as well, some yellows, some pinks. And we also produce a large amount of the smaller side of diamonds, the smaller product, which the Melee product is something that Russia also produces. So with the Melee product being less accessible into the Western jewelry market out of Russia, that certainly has made our Melee product more valuable and has been a good part of maintaining our price strength. But I think the, the melee aspect of what Mountain Province produces is factual and interesting. The fluorescent and colored product is also very interesting. And so, and so have you seen a, an increase in interest due to the fact that you're a Canadian producer and Canada has a very good name in terms of its production, in terms of its social responsibility, I think, as well? Right, and the mine, as you know, he's won several awards uh, recently, one with a joint environmental monitoring program with the Nihadi Ha in Canada's north. So operating with De Beers as our partner, very strong social responsibility. And we, Mountain Province, only produce Canadian diamonds. So we are a Canadian producer with only Canadian products. So we go to great lengths to keep that product independent and with integrity through our cycle all the way to Antwerp. And so when we are selling product in Antwerp, our buyers know that they're only buying Canadian source product. There can be no argument or debate about that. So it does provide us with an opportunity that others don't have where they're mining in different jurisdictions and proving the provenance of a particular stone can be a fair bit of work. Whereas for us, proving the provenance of a stone is pretty easy because if we're selling it, then we mined it in Canada. Right. And so are you, is that something that you're working to sort of brand in any way, or is that really, you're able to just provide the tool of that provenance for people further along the pipeline to build a brand around that Canadian story? There's been thought about different branding options. And as we know, there's Canada Mark and there's a number of branding options out there. With us right now, we are working on the premise that we produce a Canadian product. Everyone knows that and there's no other option from where that diamond came. And the jewelers who are either subject to sanctions or have self-sanctioned or would prefer 
to provide their consumers or their end users with a product that they can demonstrate as being sourced in a responsible way from a responsible country, then they can do that. So we're really at the moment allowing the end user to market that product more than we are marketing it ourselves. And Mark, maybe you can you can um, explain to us a bit about uh, Mountain Province's plan for for the long term. You know, we we know that uh, the company is at the moment one asset producer in its stake in Gachakway, but there have been announcements about the Hearn extension, and uh, we know you're you're invested in the Kennedy project. And so, how do these play into the to ensuring the longevity of Mountain Province? That's right, Avi. When I joined the company, the mine life was early 2030. What we've been seeing as we've mined down into these ore bodies is that they are wider than model. So there is more ore than was modeled in these ore bodies, which has allowed some natural extension of the life of mine. We also announced the discovery of the exciting Hearn extension. This is a large extension of the existing Hearn pit, which is underground. It's an underground extension. So the Hearn open pit that we're mining down in, we've got this large discovery out to the north, and it has the potential to be as large as the pit itself, but it's blind to surface. So it is most likely to be amenable to be mined in some form of underground mining method. We've also got the Tuzo pit, which is a fairly traditional shaped kimberlite, which is potentially amenable to low-cost bulk underground mining also. So very exciting for Gachakwai and similar to what we see at the diamond mines close by. At Akati and at Divik, we've seen open pits, the initial form of mining as per Gachakwai, and then we've seen a transition to underground mining at both Akati and at Divik. And now... Gachakwai is considering the same options. And on top of that, as you've mentioned, Arby, we have around 20 million carats in between indicated and inferred resources at the Kelvin and Faraday deposits, which are about five kilometers in a straight line from the processing plant at Gachakwai. So they're really quite close and accessible. We're also looking at and having discussions with the beers around potential options to bring those carrots into play because they're not currently in the mine plan either. So again, to sum all that up, we have a mine life in now around late 2030 with some really substantial opportunities to increase that mine life into the future. That's great to hear. And, and I think, as you mentioned, um, the Canadian product in general, and by extension, that of Mountain Province, seems well positioned in the market, you know, just in general, in terms of the current market environment, but also in the long term. I would like, before we close up, Mark, j- just get an update on the plans for the ice road. You mentioned it earlier, and I don't think many people, uh, too many people in the industry are, are quite aware of the extent to which the mining companies in the Northwestern Territories go to to ensure that there are supplies that they're able to produce for the rest of the year. And so can you put into context a bit what the ice road is and where are we now in, the, in terms of its development? So I would imagine you're starting to plan and really ramp up those plans for this um, coming winter season. Sure, Avi. The ice roads, it's very interesting. It's a very interesting phenomenon. It, it runs from Yellowknife 
all the way through. It's around 400 kilometers in length, and it services the Gacha Quay, Diavik, and Akati diamond mines. They all share in the common infrastructure of the ice road. And the ice road operates for about 60 days a year. And in those 60 days, all of the bulk commodities for all of the mines are moved along the ice road. And the ice road is a temporary road that is constructed in January, February. And by constructed, it's really the ice is made into a safe environment and it mostly travels over the top of lakes. So rather than disturb the tundra in any way, the road is through the middle of lakes. And if you look at Gacha Quay as an example, in 2020 or 2021, you're talking around 7,000 truckloads of materials will travel over that ice road during the course of those 60 days. And we have a spur road, another ice road that comes off the main ice road that leads out to Gacha Quay. And we have another, a smaller one that goes to our exploration property, uh, Kennedy and the Kelvin Camp. So it's a very, very interesting piece of engineering that is done every year and then it melts and you would never know it ever existed. And then the next year it is redone, rebuilt, and all of this material moves and then it melts again. It's, it's very interesting. And the trucks drive at certain speeds when they're traveling over the tops of these lakes. They can't drive at any form of high speed. It causes resonance in the ice, which can be a safety issue. So there's very, very controlled speeds, controlled distancing between the trucks. This is a highly controlled activity and is done very safely year on year. It, it really does sound like a, an engineering feat that's underestimated in, in the trade. And we've seen the movie on Netflix with uh, Liam Neeson, which understand the depiction of the ice road itself was accurate, but the story seemed by the trailer that I saw a little... Um, a little uh, a little off my radar but that's besides the point but it really is for me a very romantic notion and something that's really quite fascinating aspect of the industry and, and so that ice road operates from around mid-february through through march that's right and it it's really over the last 10 years the minimum time it's been open is 33 days and the maximum time it's been open is 61 days with the average being around 50. That's how many days a year it is actually used. But to your point around planning, I mean, this is a year-round activity. It's planning what's going to move along that road, at what times, uh, on what trucks, where the drivers are coming from, where the trucks are coming from. Then it's the construction of the road. Then it's all of the various safety aspects are we comfortable with the safety of the road? Are we comfortable with the thickness of the ice? Are we comfortable with the berms on the side of the road? Are we comfortable with the monitoring for animals, etc.? So it's a it's a year-round activity that results in about 50-odd days of actual work. And as I said, somewhere around 7,000 truckloads purely to service the mines. That's incredible. And, and, and that's because the um, remoteness of the mines makes it, 
there's no other way to get those supplies to the mines. You can't air freight this sort of supply into the in, into the operations. It would be cost prohibitive. I mean, we could build an all-weather road, but that would have impact on the environment. It would have impact on animal migration potentially. Building an ice road has almost no impact because it melts and goes away. We we currently land 737 aircraft at Gachakway and we can land Hercules aircraft or Antonov aircraft to bring in large supplies, but it would be cost prohibitive to do that with the types of bulk commodities that we're bringing in. So the ice road serves a fantastic purpose of relatively low cost movement of bulk commodities to the mines with an environmental footprint that is very, very marginal and then goes away. Mm. It's, a, it's great. It's a, it's a great story for the industry. I think that's, that's kind of undertold, um, especially as you bring in that environmental aspect of it. Mark, before we close up, I, I would like to bring out your crystal ball and give us some insight into what you are expecting for 2023 as we move into the new year. How do you see the, you know, obviously we can't, we can't predict geopolitics, we can't predict um, economic trends in an overly confident way, but how do you see the market playing out, particularly for the Gachakway goods that you're producing? So I guess there's two parts to that. On the market, again, I see there's the headwind of an inflation that is unclear how that will play out. There's the two tailwinds that we've already discussed about on the price. We've also got a global environment where production is going down, not up. So I think the outlook for the market is positive in my view. In 2022, we've got numerous destabilizing events happening at the same time. But in that context, the market has held. So I think as we see some some stabilization in the world, that can only be good for the diamond price. And the fact that the diamond market has held in this level of instability with what's going on in China, with what's going on with the sanctions is a credit to the industry. So the industry is, is held during a very complex period, which to me sets it up for moving forward in a robust way. And then on us, Mountain Province, we are in the process of closing and finalizing our refinancing. We have a shareholder vote coming up in a few days. And assuming that all goes well, we'll have a refinance company. On the Toronto Stock Exchange, Mountain Province is currently around the sixth most undervalued stock, according to the TSX. If you look at the enterprise value of the stock, if you look at the NAV per share purely of the Gacha Quay assets, it's $2.40. And then we've got a stock trading at around 55, 60 cents. So for us, Mountain Province, I see 2023 is a year where we're seen as a refinance, stabilized company operating in Canada, stable jurisdiction, doing it properly in a socially responsible way with a macro market that is going in the right direction. So that's my crystal ball, Ali. 
Well, it's great to hear your optimism. I think um, as we cover the market, it's easy to look at 2021, which, as we mentioned, it was such a good year, and then make the comparisons for this year. And I think it would be a stretch to expect us to match those or, or see significant growth. But we do see that growth over previous years. And so it seems that the industry has set a bar from which to stimulate growth. And I would only echo what you what you mentioned about Mountain Province that given your structures and given your location as well geographically that you're well positioned to take advantage of that so I certainly wish you luck and I hope your optimism uh, plays out for all of us so Mark thanks so much for joining us on the podcast it was enlightening and you're welcome anytime so thank you for joining us this time great to chat Ali thanks Mark and thank you everyone for listening and uh, we'll see you again next time Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rathport Diamond podcast. For more discussions, news, and analysis about the diamond industry, visit us on diamonds.net, follow Rathport Group on Instagram, and follow Rathport on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And don't forget to subscribe to get future episodes.